0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Right, Shabbat Shalom. I welcome you all, welcome everyone watching on our YouTube channel as well. Oh, we've been in a series uh, on the Fruit of the Spirit We've taken about a, a month-long break, however, for the High Holy Days, but we're back now. We're resuming our, our series. Today is part four, and I would like us to look at the fruit of peace today. So, love, joy, peace. This is part four. The first part was uh, an intro. Uh, and, and to get at this theme, I want us to focus today on passages passage from Colossians chapter three. So, turn with me, if you can, have that on the overhead as well. Colossians chapter three, uh, uh, verses one to 15. And, and Rav Shule, the Apostle Paul, writes this. Since then, you've been raised with Messiah. Set your hearts on things above, where Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now, you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Since you've taken off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. Here, here, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Messiah is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bury each other, and forgive one another if, you have any, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And finally, let the shalom, let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. As I said, we're in in a series on the fruits of the spirit and the theme uh, uh, of this, uh, uh, the theme of this series put on the overhead. The overarching theme of the whole series is that there's a difference between a supernaturally changed heart versus a morally restrained heart. The marks of a supernaturally changed heart are called the fruits of the spirit. And today we're looking at the fruit of peace. Uh, So on the overhead, I want us to look at today, number one, what is this supernatural peace that's available to you? Uh, And two, how can you in your life cultivate this this fruit? So number one, what is peace? Shalom. Look again at Colossians 3, uh, the very last verse of our passage, verse 15. It says, let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts. And there's a parallel verse in Philippians 4, uh, verse 7 and then verse 11 to 12, which says this, let the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. I've in the secret of being content under whatever circumstances, whether well fed or hungry, uh, whether in plenty or in want. Now, what's the principle here? And to get at this, I want to give an illustration from uh, Jane Austen's famous novel, *Pride and Prejudice*. There's a place near the end of the book involving the central character, Elizabeth Bennet, uh, and one of Elizabeth's sisters is engaged to be married, uh, and she says to Elizabeth. I wish you could find a man and be as happy as I am. Now, Elizabeth's response is interesting. Because on the one hand, it's not the traditional response. She doesn't say, oh, yes, you're right. I'll never be happy if I don't find a man. She doesn't give the traditional cultural response. But on the other hand, she does not give the modern response either. the, the, The modern response would say... How dare you say such a thing? Uh, I'll be free to choose the circumstances of my life uh, as I see fit. She doesn't give either the traditional or the modern response. Instead, she says this, and we'll put it on the overhead. She says, if you were to give me 40 such men, I could never be so happy as you. Until I have your disposition and your goodness, I'll never have your happiness. Now, on the overhead, again, what Elizabeth Bennett is saying is this, is that happiness is not a matter of circumstances. Rather, it's a matter of the disposition of your heart. And this goes completely against our instincts. Uh, when we're unhappy, uh, when our peace uh, is disrupted, when we experience a lack of peace, it's usually because it's triggered by some change in our circumstances. Something happens to, to disrupt our lives uh, and we lose our peace. And we look at our circumstances and we say, that's the cause of it. That's the cause of my lack of peace. What Elizabeth Bennett is pointing out here is that no, and the overhead, uh, the circumstances may be the occasion for your loss of peace, but they're not the cause. The cause is something wrong in your heart. The cause is something wrong in your heart, a disposition of your heart. The circumstances simply brought it out. Uh, But the reason for your loss of peace it's found within you. It's not caused by your outward circumstances. Uh, it's within you. Uh, and that's what Paul is saying, right, here, both in Philippians 4 and here in Colossians 3. Uh, again, on the overhead, Philippians 4, 7, Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of God guard your heart. Let the peace of Messiah rule uh, in your hearts. Now, there's three things we learn here in this passage about, about supernatural peace on the overhead. Uh, number one, this peace is not a general condition, but it is a living power that comes into your life. Indeed, the verbs here in the original Greek are very active verbs. Uh, In Philippians 4.7, where it says, let the peace of God guard your heart, it literally means uh, to march around the ramparts of your heart like a guard warding off all attacks. And here in Colossians 3.15, where it says, let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts, uh, and then the Greek, it's actually the, the term for an, an umpire. Uh, you know, in the ancient days, they had umpires for their athletic games, and the umpire ruled with an iron fist uh, to keep the peace in the games and to throw out the troublemakers. <laughs> so this peace that the Bible is talking about, the peace of God, it's not some vague inner condition. No, it is a power that comes into your life and acts. It's active. It rules, it dominates, it guards you. So the first thing we and overhead we, we learn is that this peace is a living peace. And the second thing is that peace of Messiah rules in your hearts. It's not ruled by circumstances. Rather, it rules from within. John fourteen twenty seven, Yeshua says, Peace I give you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, don't let your heart be troubled or afraid. You see, there is a worldly kind of peace, but it's always going away uh, because of changing circumstances. If you ever felt this peace, and then the very next moment it's gone, that's the peace the world gives. Uh, Think of a mirror. A mirror has no power of illumination on its own. Uh, If there's light in the room, the the mirror is illuminating. If it's dark in the room, the mirror is dark. Uh, If it's light, the mirror is light. If it's dark, the mirror is dark. It has no power within itself of illumination. And in the same way, the natural heart can only reflect its circumstances. If there's peaceful circumstances in your life, then you have peace in your heart. But you don't have your own peace. It's only the peace the world gives you. And the world can take it away so fast. On the overhead, but the text here in Colossians 3 says, Let the peace of Messiah rule. ...in your hearts. It's not ruled by outward circumstances. In fact, it rules despite... ...the circumstances. It rules from within. It rules from itself. Uh, It's your peace... ...and you're walking in it. Uh, It's not a peace the world gives you... ...and then can take away. Uh, No, it's it's the peace of Yeshua... ...within you. It rules. It dominates. Uh, It abides in you... ...regardless of your outward circumstances... Uh, it wards off and it works in spite of negative circumstances. And the number three on the overhead, it's the peace of Messiah. It's not a peace that you develop yourself. It's a peace that comes from union with Him. So let me ask you: Do you have this peace? Do does it abide in you? You know, when you're younger, let's say you're under forty. Uh, It's easy to placate your heart uh, by saying to yourself, uh, I'll eventually get the job I want, uh, the relationship I want, uh, the things I want. But as time goes on, you'll you'll finally see you cannot control your circumstances. (laughs) And it often takes a while for you to admit how dependent you are for you, for your peace on the circumstances of the world, uh, which you have so little control over. So if you have no peace on uh, you, you have no peace on your own. Unless you have the supernatural peace of Yeshua. So let me ask you again. Do you have it? Examine your hearts today. Ask yourself. Do I have this peace of God within me that passes all circumstances? That's number one. That's what, the peace, that's what peace is on the overhead. Number two. Now how do you get it? How do you get How do you cultivate uh, this peace? And there are three spiritual disciplines here in this text uh, that are key for you if you're going to cultivate this supernatural peace. On the the overhead, these three disciplines I'm going to call thinking out, digging down, uh, and looking up. Okay? Thinking out, digging down, looking up. So number one, thinking out. Uh, Colossians 3 verse 1. Since then, you've been seated with Messiah. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. Paul says, since then, you know, if this is true, that you've been raised with Messiah, then think out what this means in your life uh, and live that way. Let me point out how completely different this is from the secular approach uh, to peace uh, and stress and dealing with stress and anxiety. You know, the bookstores are filled with books and the magazines are filled with articles and radio and TV shows are filled with advice The Internet is filled with blogs, focusing on secular approaches to coping with stress, coping with pressure, uh, dealing with anxiety, uh, finding peace. Uh, And what's so interesting about all of them, unlike the biblical approach uh, of thinking out the implications of your spiritual reality, of of who you are in Messiah, unlike that, they don't start with thinking these things out. They jump right into doing. They jump right to technique. Technique. Uh, and now none of these modern self-help books start with a, with a worldview. None of them. They don't look at the big questions. They don't start with thinking. Uh, you know, the, the articles you read on how to deal with stress, how to cope with pressure, they don't say, let's start by thinking. What's the meaning of life? <laughs> where, do you, where do we come from? Where are we going? What's really important? What's the reason for life? What's life all about? They're not going to start there. They're, going to jump. They're not going to start with thinking. They're going to jump right to technique. They're going to discuss getting your life in balance, getting a balance between work and rest and, and, and recreation. They'll say, let's talk about relaxation techniques and, and meditation techniques. Let's talk about controlling guilty thoughts. Uh, in other words, let's go right down to technique. They don't start with thinking. They start with doing. Why? Let me answer this question about why they want to avoid thinking about a, the greater worldview by quoting from a very famous U.S. Supreme Court justice from the early 1900s, Oliver Wendell Jr. Holmes. O- Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. <laughs> uh, uh, and he, 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 was, he was this famous Supreme Court justice, chief of the Supreme Court, and, and an atheist. But he actually thought out the implications of his atheistic secular worldview. And in thinking it out, this is what he wrote on the overhead. He wrote this. There's no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. The world produced me and the rattlesnake, but I'll kill it if I get a chance. And the only reason is that it's incongruous to the world that I want. The world we're all trying to make how according to our own power. Oliver Wendell Holmes was a secular person. And as he understood the world, he said, as far as I know, the world was not created. Contrary to what we just read in Genesis 1.1. <laughs> uh, the world is an accident, he says. Human life is an accident. We just act, An accidental, he calls it, a collocation of molecules. There's a bumping all together. And he's thinking, then he, he actually thinks out, though, the implications of that worldview. And the overhead, he says, if that's true... Uh, and nothing has any purpose, uh, and we're just an accident, and there's no design, then number one, there's no empirical, rational reason to say a human being is more valuable than a rock. And number two, there's no right or wrong. There's just power. No one can say what's objectively, universally right or wrong. Right or wrong, uh, it means that there's a design. Uh, it means there's a reason for things, and objective morality given by God. But if everything's an accident, who's to say what's right or wrong? Uh, There is no right or wrong. There is only power, only the survival of the fittest. So whoever gets their way, gets their way. And there's no moral obligation to live in any particular way. You may have a moral preference, but there's no moral obligation to live in any particular way. Uh, Now, the average secular person today does not go there. They typically say, Yeah, I agree. As far as I know, this world is just an accident. But I somehow know deep down, nonetheless, that people are valuable. I just know it. Uh, I know know injustice is wrong. Uh, Bloodshed is wrong. Racism is wrong. Uh, And people's lives matter. I just know it. Okay, but how do you know this? Because you're actually citing Judeo Christian biblical principles, but you, but you claim not to believe in the Bible. No. You're being inconsistent, and you're getting your peace by refusing to think out the implications of your atheistic or agnostic worldviews. But messianic faith, Yeshua faith, works in exactly the opposite way. Paul here says Do you believe this world was created by a God who wanted your friendship? And even though you've turned away from him, he's moved heaven and earth at infinite cost to himself. He's come down in the form of his son to get you back. If you believe this, if you understand this, then think what this means. How valuable then is every human life? Uh, How significant is your life? Think out the implications of your beliefs and it will help you to have the peace of God abide in your heart in this life. If you don't have peace and joy, it's because you're not thinking out the implications of your beliefs. Here's the difference. A secular person says, I'm not going to think out the implications of my belief. uh, And that's how I get my peace, by not thinking about it. (laughs) I'm not going to think. I'm just going to go right to technique. Uh, I'm not going to think. But Messianic faith, Yeshua faith, does not have that stupid kind of peace. (laughs) Uh, Put my head in the sand kind of peace. Uh, But a smart piece, uh, a thinking piece, a consistent piece—not a piece that that comes by refusing to think out the implications uh, of my belief. Not a piece that comes from escapism. Not this kind of piece on the overhead. Uh, Ho, ho, ho! To the bottle I go to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rains may fall and winds may blow, and many miles still I to go. But under a tall tree I will lie and watch the clouds go sailing by. (laughs) that's one approach to peace. (laughs) I'm going to stop thinking. Uh, uh, I'm going to refuse to think. Uh, uh, I'm going to try. I'm going to escape. That's a way way to peace, but it's a stupid peace. (laughs) It's it's a peace by getting stupid. (laughs) But the Bible says a believer's approach to peace is by getting smarter. It's by thinking out uh, uh, the positive implications of your belief and the great hope, the sure hope you have in Messiah. Messiah and in your place in his eternal kingdom. So, uh, so is history, you know, as Shakespeare says, just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing? Or is history his story? Is history all about the love of God for you? That makes a huge difference in the way you, you see the world and the way you think. So the first point is this. There is no intellectual end run. If you want the peace that passes understanding, if you want the peace that transcends your circumstances, that guards your heart, that rules your heart, you've got to think on and meditate on and contemplate the implications of the biblical truths of the gospel. That's the first of these three spiritual disciplines you need to cultivate the supernatural fruit of peace. What I'm calling thinking out. But all alone, by the way, it's not enough. Thinking and logic and reason can get you in certain ways, but all alone, it cannot get you there. There's more. The intellect alone is not enough. So on the overhead, number one, the first spiritual discipline for supernatural peace is thinking out. The second spiritual discipline I'm going to call digging down. Look at Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This verse begins with the exhortation to, to kill off, you know, to, to put to death, uh, this long list of, of fleshly sins. You know, sexual immorality, impurity. Now, what's impurity? Impurity is impure thoughts, impure images, uh, impure practices, uh, lust. Uh, lust is our impure desires and, and, and obsessions. Now, greed, and then in verse eight he says this. In Colossians three, verse eight, Paul says, "Read yourself now also of these other things: uh, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying." And then in verse eleven, we contrast different kinds of people groups. There's kind of a hint here that there were some class and racial discrimination problems in the congregation of Colossae. He says in Colossians 3.11, here in Messiah's kingdom, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Messiah is all and is in all. But what's the cause of all these things? What's at the bottom of all these sins, all these problems? Right in the middle of verse 5 are two key words that, that are critical to understanding this. The first of this phrase, evil desires. You know, it says, put off evil desires. Well, the word desires in Greek is the word epithumia. And it's kind of a hard word to translate, actually. It literally means uh, an epi-desire, uh, a mega-desire, uh, an and inordinate desire, an, an over-desire. On the overhead, I put that, by the way. Uh, So to translate it as evil desires, it's a bit misleading. Because it gives you the impression what it means is a desire for something evil, right? On the overhead, that's not what it means. It's not talking about an ordinary desire for something evil. It's talking about an over-desire for something good that leads to evil. This is a great key to, to biblical peace. But because of translation problems, it's often missed. Every place that character change and supernatural heart transformation is mentioned, this word is there in the midst to explain it, it can, in a kind of a catch-all summary way what's wrong with your heart. You know, John uses this, this word up in John 2. James uses it in James 1. Paul uses it in Ephesians 4 and here in Colossians 3 and in Galatians 5, concerning the fruit of the Spirit. Peter uses it. Everybody uses it. The problem with our heart is not just ordinary desires for bad things, but also over-desires for good things. And then it comes from the second term I want us to look at here in verse 5, the term idolatry. Now, I know the way this is typically translated. It looks like idolatry is only referencing greed. It looks like it's saying greed, which is idolatry. But if you look at the parallel passage in Ephesians uh, 5, 5, where a very similar statement is made, it's very clear that when Paul's talking about idolatry, he's talking about all these things, all the sins listed there in verse 5. Uh, On the overhead, what Paul is saying here is this. Kill off the over-desires in your heart, which is caused by idolatry. This is one of the keys to biblical peace. Because when you put these two terms together, Paul's showing you how sin works in your heart psychodynamically. Exodus 20, the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 2. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So this commandment, you think about it, it envisions two options, two prospects, uh, two ways. Either worship the one and only uncreated God, the true God, or worship some other finite thing as if it were a God. But notice the one option that's impossible that is to have no God at all. The first commandment doesn't say, I'm the Lord, your God, don't worship other gods or no God. It doesn't list that option because you're either going to worship God or you're going to worship something as God. But the one thing that's impossible for the human heart is not to worship anything, not to have any God. Lots of people say, well, I'm not religious. I don't worship anything. Now, that might be true in a formal sense, but basically there is no such person. Because everyone lives for something. Everyone has something that's the basis for your joy, uh, the basis for your meaning, the basis for your ultimate value. Everyone's living for something. And that, therefore, spiritually is your life. There's something that you have made your life. Now, how do you find out what your idols are? How do you find out what these idols are that are causing this epithemia, uh, this over-desire that's in your life? On the overhead, let me give you two tests. The first test is this. Ask yourself this question. What is there in my life? What pursuit? Uh, what relationship? Uh, what condition? What thing in my life that if I lost it would make me not want to live? What thing if I lost it? What condition, what pursuit, what relationship? If I lost it, I would say, I no longer want to live. If there's anything you can say that about, and everybody's got something, if you're honest, that is your life. That's your life. If you lose it, it means I don't feel like living. Uh, Then that's your life. (laughs) You put into its hands, into the hands of that idol, uh, that power uh, in you, the power of life and death. It's your real master. Your real Savior, your real Lord, your real God, your real worship. Something out there happens, uh, and, and it puts into jeopardy a good thing that you've made it into an ultimate thing. And your peace is gone. Why? Is it the circumstances? No. It's the disposition of your heart toward that thing. The circumstances are the occasion for your loss of peace, but they're not the cause. You caused it by your idol. That's the first test. What if I were to, what is there that if I were to lose it would make me not even want to live? Whatever that thing is, that's the thing you've made your life. That's your idol. Second test on the overhead. To find out what your idols are is to find your epi emotions, your uncontrollable emotions, your overwhelming, overwhelmingly negative emotions, and trace them back to their source. And you will find your idols. Now, and this is important for you to understand: supernatural peace does not replace normal human emotions and, and sorrows. If someone blocks a good thing in your life, you're going to get angry. Yeshua got angry. If a good thing if there's a good thing in your life and something jeopardizes it, uh, you may worry. You're going to. Yeshua showed concern. If there's a good thing in your life and you lose it, you're going to feel grief. Yeshua wept. And you see, he had total peace. He had the peace of God. So the supernatural peace does not replace normal human emotion. And normal, but, but, but normal human emotions don't ruin your peace. The supernatural peace of Messiah, it buoys you up through these normal human emotions. It keeps you going. It keeps you balanced. It doesn't remove these normal human emotions. But what does remove your peace isn't normal anger or normal worry or normal sorrow, but it's epi-anger, uh, an epi-worry, an epi-sorrow. So, for example, if it's a good thing in your life, something, uh, something blocks it, and you get angry. But if it's the ultimate thing in your life, then you get bitter. Uh, and you can't overcome it. Uh, and it's, it's an epi-desire, it's an epi-anger. Uh, if a good thing is jeopardized, you worry. But if it's, if it's an ultimate thing is jeopardized, you're paralyzed. Uh, you're utterly paralyzed. Uh, uh, you don't know what to do. You're absolutely frozen with fear and anxiety. If a good thing is lost, you grieve. But if an ultimate thing is lost, you are a complete and absolute despair. Now, do you understand why this is such an important key to your peace? When you're deeply restless, when you're peaceless... Because of circumstances, uh, you're inconsolable. Uh, It creates this anger or this fear or this despondency, and it ruins your peace. On the overhead, you say, my circumstances are what's causing this lack of peace. But it's not true. It's the disposition of your heart, and your circumstances are simply revealing it. Uh, It's the epithumia, the over-desire, caused by your idols that's the real cause of your lack of peace. And this is the only way you're going to find out who you really are and never deal with your lack of peace in your life. You've got to dig down to this level, to this root level of your heart. So let me ask you today, do you ever get down to that level? You'll never understand uh, the emotions that you can't seem to handle. You'll never understand some of the sinful things you do. You'll never understand yourself unless you get down to this level. Now, if you t- see you're here today and you say, I'm not a religious person, or you say, I don't have any idols in my life. Don't kid yourself. I'm trying to show you, you do have them. You have something you're living for and whatever it is that you're living for controls you. You don't control your own life. And for the majority of you here today who, who are believers, you say, I only live for Yeshua. I don't have any idols. And to you, too, I say, oh, really? <laughs> there are alternative competing functional saviors in your life, whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not. And so even for believers, you've got to dig down to this level where you won't come to grips with your lack of peace. You won't be able to deal with your anger or your worry or your despair. You've got to dig down deep or you won't find the things that are destroying your peace. So on the overhead, that's number one, thinking out, uh, and two, digging down. And finally, number three, looking up. What are you going to do with your idols once you've discovered them? Most people try to deal with them uh, by willpower. Most of us are blind to the idols in our life. We're always minimizing the things, and we don't want to admit just how important they are to us, uh, how these various competing priorities, how important they are. So we need to come to grips with the things that are controlling us, the things that are ruling your life. So, for example, let's say as a grown adult, uh, I'm still controlled by my parents' expectations of me. Uh, and I'm, I'm living in perpetual guilt for the way I don't measure up to what were my parents' expectations. I say, I can overcome this idol by sheer willpower. But I'm deceiving myself. It does not work on the other head. Because, the, because idols, this is important, idols cannot be uprooted. They can only be replaced On the overhead, there's a famous uh, 19th century Scottish theologian, Thomas Chalmers, in his work, The Explosive Power, I'm sorry, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He writes this. We only cease to be the slave of one appetite because another taste has brought it into subordination. For example, a youth may cease to idolize sensual pleasure and partying, but only because the idol of material gain has gotten the ascendancy. In other words, he now he's older now and he focuses on his career, <laughs> but there's not one personal transformation of the heart uh, is left with, I'm sorry, but there's not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but it's desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of of a new one. What Chalmers is saying here is that you make certain things in your life so powerful, you're worshiping them. Uh, you're doting on them. Uh, you're seeing them as your beauty and your joy. You're, you're joying in them. And, you, and when you have free time, when you've not have anything else to think about, ask yourself, where does my mind go? And the overhead, William Temple says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. When you're alone, You have nothing else to think about. Where does your mind naturally go? What do you automatically focus on? That's worship. And if you say, okay, I see that I'm too controlled by by sensuality. Uh, I'm too controlled by materialism. I'm too controlled by what others think of me. I'm too controlled by my career. And if you think you can overcome it by sheer willpower, you're kidding yourself. You may conquer a particular object of worship... But you need some object of absolute beauty and absolute joy uh, to have something like that. That's unconquerable. You can only expel one affection with another more powerful one. And that's why Colossians 3 says you kill off in, in, inordinate desires. But notice it starts with the word therefore. Colossians 3 verse 5. It says therefore. And what is the therefore in verse 5 doing? It's referring back to the first four verses of Colossians 3. 3 Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Which says this, Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4 on the overhead. We can get that overhead up. There we go. Since then, this is is what the therefore is all about. Since then, you've been raised with Messiah. Set your heart on things above. Where Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things. Why? For you died. And your life is now hidden with Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. This is saying that you can only destroy the idols in your life described in verses 5 to 11 if you first done verses 1 to 4. You can destroy your idols only if you've set your heart, you've set your mind on things above, and Messiah, Yeshua, and his kingdom. Notice, it not only says set your mind, that's thinking, but also set your heart meaning to rejoice, meaning to weep with joy over something. Now, what is this? What are you to set your mind and your hearts on? And overhead, we're to set our minds and hearts on and rejoice in the fact that not only has Yeshua been risen, but that you have been risen with him. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then, you've been raised with Messiah. Set your heart on things above where Messiah is seated, at the right hand of God. And notice it's in the past tense. <laughs> this is astounding. <laughs> the text says, Colossians 3.3, For you died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Messiah in God. You've been raised with Messiah. Do, wow, do you realize what this is say- saying? You, know, you think it, would, it, should, it should say, If you're Yeshua follower, then one day in the future, when you die, you'll be raised with him. But it doesn't say that. On the overhead, Paul says, I want you to set your mind and your heart on the fact that that spiritually you have died. And you already are risen in Yeshua. And if you set your mind and heart on this accomplished fact, then you'll finally have the power to, to cast out these drives, these cravings, these demands in your heart that come from idolatry. You'll finally be able to cast out the things that are destroying your peace. Now, what does it mean to set your mind and your heart on this new reality? It means you've died in Messiah. You've been raised in Messiah. You're in him. You're hidden in him. You're with him. This is amazing. When he says you've died in Messiah, it means that God considers your sins as forgiven As if you had died on the cross yourself to pay for them. He considers your sins absolutely forgiven. And then secondly, when it says you've been raised with Messiah, what does that mean? Yeshua is at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the right hand is the place of honor, the place of intimacy. And the Father's heart bursts with love and delight when he sees his Son. Because of all that he's done. So when it says, you've been raised with Messiah, it means that if you've been raised with him, if you said, Father, accept me because of Yeshua, then then in the overhead, the, the moment you believe, then God delights in you as if you've done everything that Yeshua has done. The Father accepts you as if you've done everything Yeshua has done. On the overhead, set your mind, set your heart on these truths. Meditate on them. Contemplate. them. Contemplate this passage of Colossians 3. Go home and meditate on Colossians 3. Worship the Lord. Sing to him. Give thanks to him for these amazing things that this, this passage tells us. He's done for you. You need to get this awesome truth in your heart. Uh, until you say, if this is true, then how should I then live? And that and only that will expel all these competing affections. This is what heals the heart. Colossians 3 verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Okay, you say, how do I do this? How do I do this, David? I'm feeling my over-desires. My peace is gone, Uh, I'm upset, Uh, I'm feeling overly angry, or or overly fearful, or overly despondent, or overly drawn by the world, uh, by by the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, uh, and the boastful pride of life, what do I do? First realize your heart is currently set on something that's earthly. When your peace is gone, ask yourself, what is it that I have turned into being my life? What are the other gods that I have functionally put before the Lord? What things have I made too important? What even good things have I turned into ultimate things? Ask the Lord to show you this. And then secondly, once you've identified it, look at it and say, you are not my life. (laughs) Yeshua is my life. And then thirdly, you need to rejoice in him. Uh, As the the very thing that you're looking for, to all these other things to give you. Here's an example. Many, many years ago, I was counseling uh, two different women who both had troubled marriages uh, and both had teenage sons who were getting into trouble. And both had husbands that were lousy husbands. (laughs) And and the, the husbands being lousy husbands really exacerbated these teenage boys going bad. I encouraged them both, among other things, to forgive their husbands as Messiah had forgiven them. And surprisingly, uh, the newer believer, she was able to forgive her husband. And the seemingly more mature believer, she was not. I was very perplexed by this. uh, Until I realized that even though the first woman, the the newer believer, loved her son, the second woman had made her son her life. In other words, for the second woman, her son's success, uh, his happiness, was everything to her. She was living for him. Her life would be a success if he was a success. And if he was a failure, she was a failure. Which meant that he was her life. Now, everybody's got something. She had an over-desire, which led to hating her husband, because she blamed him for her son going bad. So she could not forgive him. Why? Because of what she's done to make her son an idol in her life. She could not forgive her husband who was destroying her idol. She had an epi anger toward her husband. And the only way to overcome this wasn't to say, I'm going to try really really hard to forgive him. Uh, I'm going to try harder to forgive. I'm going to really be a good Yeshua follower. I'm going to stop hitting my husband. No, that won't work, and it didn't work. She first had to deal with the idol in her life. She had to turn to her son and say, not out loud, but in her heart, say to him, you are not my life. <laughs> Yeshua, Yeshua alone is my life. she had to look at her son and say, it's not that I'm loving you too much, but I'm loving Yeshua too little. She had to say in her heart, you know, for years I've been doing everything for you, my son, sacrificing for you, living for you, but really, ultimately, it was all for me. It was all about me. All this parenting is ultimately been all about me. Uh, uh, I need for you to be successful. I need for you to be happy. It's really all about me. And therefore, unless I demote you in my life, I'm never going to be the mother you need, ironically. She needed to admit the real problem here, said that she needed to come to understand that you, my son, are not my life. I'm looking for you to, for you to give me what only Yeshua can give me. And every time that I hate my husband... Because of my over desire for my son's happiness, I'm going to say to my heart, to, in my heart to my son, you are not my life. Yeshua is my life. I'm going to use that moment as an opportunity to worship Yeshua. And then I'm going to look at my husband and say, because my son is not my life, you, my husband, have not blocked the access to my life uh, by being a poor husband. And so therefore now I can forgive you. My life is hid with Messiah. I'm already beloved in him. I'm accepted in him. Yeshua finds me a delight. I find my worth in him. And by the way, she can't just say that. She has to internalize it. She has to believe it. She has to worship. She has to experience it. She has to praise until it warms her heart. She has to weep over it. She has to be dazzled by it. And if she does that, bit by bit by bit, her peace will come back. That is a practical example I'm trying to give you of how this is done, replacing your idols with the love of Yeshua. Let me close with this. Every good adventure story always goes something like this. Some ordinary is going along in their their life, and suddenly something comes in and takes them to another time, or another planet, or another dimension, or, or far, far away land. And they get caught up in some big story. And that big story is heroes and, and villains and evil forces. And there's always some incredible conflict. Uh, and at, at the last minute, someone comes in and undergoes a great sacrifice and snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. And everyone is saved. And then they come home and they come back to their present time or the present planet or the present dimension. They come back and they've changed. Their character is different. They're never the same. They're braver. They're sweeter. They're happier. Uh, They're more easily moved. Uh, They're nobler. They become great. And nothing now tempts them. Because they have seen high beauty Uh, and celebrity uh, and sex and money can't hold a candle to that. Uh, And nothing bores them now because because someone has sacrificed, someone has sacrificed so that they can be saved. And now every second is precious. Nothing tempts them now. Nothing bores them now and nothing scares them now because they have seen far greater evil and have stared it down and now there's a greatness about their life. Why? Because they're now living every single day in light of that bigger, that greater story. They've come from a bigger story. Now they live daily their life in light of that bigger story. Why? Because they remember it. Uh, their minds and their hearts are set on it. And so they move through life with a new Greatness. And it's the only way for you, likewise, to become a person of greatness. A kind person, a forgiving person, a faithful, steadfast person, a peaceful person, a joyful person, a noble person, a courageous person. That's how it's done. Not through mechanical techniques, but rather you have to see that you have been raised in Yish- with Yeshua, You've been part of this incredible, great, heroic story, and now you're, yeah, now you're back. And you'll never be the same. That's what it means to be a Yeshua follower. A believer is someone who's come back from this incredible story, and you're never the same. Uh, and every time you worship and pray and meditate on the word, you can go back to that incredible story, uh, the greatest story ever told. And you remember what Yeshua has done for you. And what he's faced. And you see him snatching you from death and destruction. At infinite cost to his own life. And you're moved by it. And you weep. And you give thanks. And you give praise. Uh, And you worship. And you come back to your present life and you're changed. You've become great. At time, set your mind, set your heart on things above, where you have been seated with Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. Let's stand in praise. Hallelujah. <laughs> Music team, I took on up. Hallelujah. Let's pray, and the musical team will lead us in worship. Fathers, we so much want a supernaturally changed heart, not some mere morally restrained heart. We know that peace and joy is not about my outward circumstances, but it's a matter of the disposition of my heart. The cause of my lack of peace and my lack of joy is because my heart has other affections. Lord, I confess my heart has other idols, has inordinate desires that are crowding you out, Yeshua, that I'm functionally making more important than you. Lord, I need your living power in my life. To guard and to rule my heart. If I'm to have this supernatural peace that overcomes all circumstances. This peace the world cannot give. Lord Yeshua, today I pray right now. Fill and empower and rule my heart. From within. Transform me. Give me peace. Your peace that abides. Regardless of my outward circumstances. That only comes from a union with you, Yeshua. Lord Yeshua, show me right now my idols. Help me to displace and and replace them, Lord, with the overwhelming revelation and understanding and sense of your love and your presence. And, And meditating daily on what you have done for me. You literally took me from death to life. Help me to see. Help me to remember that I have been raised with you, Messiah. Help me to set my heart on things above. Not on earthly things. For I died, Yeshua, and my life is now hidden with you. Yeshua, you are my life. Help me to daily, daily to rejoice in this, to weep for joy over this. That I've been risen with Yeshua, that I live for you. You are my life. You are my peace. And therefore, Lord Yeshua, I today praise you. And I honor and thank uh, and worship uh, and sing to you and give you my life. I want only your life abiding in me. And I pray this all in your name. Beshem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.